a social distancing tip. While the CDC urges you to avoid close contact, like hugging or shaking hands, there are other non-physical ways to say hello. Wave, wink, use sign language, salute, smile, give the peace sign, throw up an air high five, do jazz hands. Remember, stay a minimum of six feet or two arms length away from others and stay home if you can. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. With the Super Bowl in the rearview mirror by a matter of days, there's more pro football in February. Get ready for it. The XFL starts today and with it a new era where it's always football season. The home team, the D.C. defenders, they want to set the tone from the opening kick. Meanwhile, the underdog visitors from Seattle, they are all business. Minutes away from the kick, the energy, anticipation, and excitement builds. All for the love of football. This is the XFL on ABC. 43 degrees, the sun has come out. Audi Stadium in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Welcome to the progressive countdown to kickoff for the XFL opener. And you know, when the Seattle Dragons, the D.C. Defenders get together, you can throw out the records. There are no records. It's a clean slate. If all you know about the XFL is he hate me, forget about it. Long gone. This is the brand spanking new XFL. Great to be with Greg McElroy. I'm Steve Levy. Right here today, you're going to see the passion of football players who are going for a few things. Go to the NFL, get back to the NFL, and if not, just playing football really for the love of football itself. This is win-win for everybody. It's great. I mean, it, football is America. America is football. I mean, it is synonymous with the fabric of our country, and we have 10 more weeks of it. It's going to be incredible. I can't believe we're here. We finally made it. But football is here to stay. Thank goodness for the next several weeks. You're going to be at your best today because in 100 years from now, we're celebrating the 100-year anniversary of the XFL. This is the tape or whatever it's going to be at that point. <laughs> they're going to plug in. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Oh, yes, we did. How you doing, everybody? It's your doctor of defunct, your evocator of expansion, your professor of previously domiciled, your reverend of relocation, your captain of contraction. Yes, it's your buddy, Tim Hanlon. And this is indeed Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast, our little journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for coming by. Thank you for allowing us to distract you from all the ills of the world outside uh, as we hunker down still and do all the right things to stay safe and healthy, hopefully you and yours are uh, doing exactly that. And uh, of course, uh, as is the want on this show, we don't wait around too long. We don't uh, we don't waste any time, frankly. When when things go kablooey in the realm of pro sports, we uh, we tackle literally and figuratively the situation, and we don't wait around for the body to be uh, frankly uh, cold. Uh, we dip right into uh, the situation at hand. And this week, as you just heard there, we're going to get into it. The XFL, the second version of such, already come and gone uh, for various reasons. Well, obviously, the most pronounced of them, of course, is this incredible turn of events that all of us have gone through the last couple of months. But uh, perhaps very dramatically, 
the XFL with uh, you know all of the the uh, storm and drong of uh, of, uh, of Vince McMahon and the uh, the braggadocio and the and the money and and the commitment to a, at least a, a three or four year game plan is kaput, is gone, is done, uh, and dramatically so in, in very short order uh, a couple of weeks back. And um, I think shocking, yeah, not, not too, you know, obviously a surprise and maybe not too surprising uh, in the face of, uh, of the, all the bad news and potentially further maladies and in, in, in stories yet to come, uh, the questions around how uh, pro football, uh, pro sports, uh, large events, all those kinds of things, the uncertainty of that for sure. I think a lot of people certainly had no, uh, uh, didn't uh, sort of feel too surprised that uh, the XFL was going to take a pause, uh, just like all of pro sports. But I think a lot of people were uh, just shocked, frankly, just how quickly uh, the uh, the end of it basically was just announced uh, over a span of just lit- literally just a couple of days. Um, we're going to get into the uh, dramatic turn of events, uh, as well as the lead up and uh, sort of what was sort of planned to come and maybe sort of what is yet still to to play out uh, around the XFL, the second version of such with our guest this week, Kevin Seifert. And uh, if you haven't read his stuff on ESPN.com or the ESPN app, uh, Kevin is the uh, premier uh, NFL and pro football writer uh, for ESPN. And um, we're going to get into uh, a bunch of his uh uh, his following of this league, he was uh, amongst the first to break the news that uh, there would be both uh, a suspension uh, of the league as well as the uh, reporting of the fact of uh, of its declaration, Alpha Sports, the uh, unit to set up by Vince McMahon to, uh, to fund and run this league, uh, declaring bankruptcy shortly thereafter, literally one business day after announcing that the league would suspend operations. But uh, Kevin, obviously, uh, uh, excellent writer around all things pro football generally, but also a bunch of stories that we'll get into uh, about the XFL, its birth, uh, some of the interesting stories and and, and uh, players uh, that were part of the mix, uh, as well as uh, obviously uh, intrepidly uh, reporting uh, its uh, very quick, uh, at least initially, demise. Uh, we get into all bunches of things, how, uh, how Vince McMahon funded the whole enterprise via his alpha enterprises, uh, you know, the business plan, the TV rights, uh, you know, essentially doing TV buys and uh, on the bet that over time, a couple of years, maybe that uh, the uh, roles could get reversed and then some rights fees could be paid to uh, the XFL, uh, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the running of games on Fox and ESPN and ABC and, and FS1 and, and, and that clip that you just heard, yeah, was indeed from the very first game. Uh, that was on ABC. Uh, Steve Levy calling uh, the action with Greg McElroy in the color commentary. Uh, and that was February 8th, literally just almost three months ago as we record this episode uh, at Audi Stadium in uh, D.C., the home of D.C. United, the Major League Soccer team. Uh, just about a sellout crowd there, almost 20,000, arguably a, a right sized uh, environment for a fledgling and still unproven at the time football league. The D.C. Defenders, the home team against the Seattle Dragons already in their first game without any other games played. Uh, the underdog, the Seattle Dragons were. Uh, we're going to get into all of uh, the, the the curious stories around uh, around all of that, why it was so quick to shut down and then, then declare bankruptcy literally a day later. Why not perhaps just suspend operations and try to come back 
in the spring of next year. Uh, look, the NFL isn't even figured out what they're going to do for this fall. Uh, is college football going to come back? Uh, we have a whole bunch of leagues still as we record this. Uh, still not certain if they're going to complete seasons and all that kind of stuff. So uh, it seems perhaps to some a very hasty decision to just just cut bait and, and end the whole thing right there and declare bankruptcy. Uh, the manner in which all of it was shut down, some have already argued uh, if COVID-19 was a convenient excuse to to end this thing, perhaps maybe uh, as it was already getting going, that uh, that Vince maybe didn't see actually this uh, playing out two to three years, uh, according to plan and the uh, the McKinsey research that uh, sort of found uh, foundationally got this all set up uh, to go. What is uh, the state of Oliver Luck, who is arguably the what I would call the chief credibility officer? I mean, he was, you know, obviously the big name uh, with a, a tremendous uh, football pedigree. And uh, now is uh, embroiled in a lawsuit against, interestingly, not Alpha itself, but but Vince McMahon uh, personally, since he is and was the source of the money, um, you know, and, and the, the manner in which Luck was uh, was let go, was terminated before even the announcement of the league uh, suspending operations and then declaring bankruptcy. So uh, hijinks probably yet to play out there. What of uh, Vince's legacy now? I mean, this is arguably strike two. Do you want to mix a metaphor? Uh, his second attempt at, uh, at professional football. We all know how the first one played out, but obviously for different reasons. Uh, and we alluded that uh, some of that, and we obviously had some previous conversations devoted to that. Just search up uh, all the past episodes on goodseatstillavailable.com or your, your podcast catcher. You'll find those episodes. Uh, and maybe, too, also the idea of spring football or playing pro football or some version of pro football in the spring, or even just a challenger league at that. As Kevin sort of uh, uh, wisely uh, points out, you know, the AFL, probably the last sort of successful uh, challenger slash merger into uh, and constituting a lot of what the NFL is today. Uh, but ever since then, right, it's just been uh, folly after folly and uh, mishap after mishap in terms of trying to create uh, either an alternative or a challenger or some combination thereof to the mighty NFL. So we get into all of those aspects of the conversation, albeit only a few months after its demise and uh, its actual launch, frankly. And uh, it's our first investigation of what happened to the XFL 2.0 with our guest this week, Kevin Seifert uh, from ESPN and ESPN.com. And uh, stay tuned for that. You will learn a few tidbits already and uh, stick around for that. Before we do so, however, we want to say uh, greetings to our old pals at Old School Shirts, Dot com in Cincinnati, Ohio, beautiful Cincinnati, Ohio, and uh, it's a, a, a you know it's a wonderful uh, site. It's a wonderful set of uh, of garb that they have for you at OldSchoolShirts.com, one of our longest lasting sponsors. Uh, we cannot uh, thank them enough. And if you consider yourself to be an old soul trapped in a modern world, well, you can relive those days gone by with classic imprints from the vast collection at our friends at OldSchoolShirts.com. They're passionate about vintage style shirts and the teams and the brands, the places that inspired them. They've got a wide assortment of stuff, designs, logos from not only sports teams and leagues, but also uh, other pop culture uh, places that you may remember literally and figuratively, perhaps that ice cream stand that was famous in your city or an old radio station uh, that you grew up with, maybe even a stadium or an arena uh, that brought back lots of memories, maybe still around, frankly. All of those things and many, many more are commemorated in classic and well-constructed t-shirt form at 
oldschoolshirts.com. And of course, when you go there and you visit early and often and you purchase a couple of those items and you're going to love them, I'm sure you will. Make sure that you use the promo code at checkout, will you? It's good seats. Yeah, use that promo code good seats at checkout. And please enjoy, courtesy of PF Wilson and friends at oldschoolshirts.com and us here at Good Seats Still Available, 10% off all of your purchases. Yes, that's the promo code good seats, all one word, 10% off all of your purchases at oldschoolshirts.com. We thank them, of course, for their sponsorship of the show. And we thank you for checking them out. And we thank you, of course, for continuing to listen as we now segue nice and smooth, see, into our conversation about the second go around of the XFL. What the hell happened? Oh my, it was it was a blink in a blink of an eye, it's gone. And here's our conversation with ESPN's Kevin Seifert coming at you. Please, as always, enjoy. The idea around this uh, silly little show, right, is focused on uh, what used to be in, in pro sports. And, you know, frankly, we don't wait for bodies to uh, be fully uh, cold and uh, and ready for burial uh, around here. <laughs> and here's, you know, it, this is almost reminiscent of the AAF. But um, just a quick background for our audience. You are the NFL, but also, I guess, more broadly, the pro AA or the pro football scribe for uh, a bunch of stuff at ESPN. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, you know we almost well, I wouldn't say exclusively, but very, uh, very frequently writing NFL stuff. But I'm interested in all levels of pro football, so I've done CFL uh, work, I've done uh, XFL, a little bit of AAF. Uh, I've worked on stories relating to the Spring League, which is uh, sort of a developmental league that's based uh, in Texas, and so all kinds of, uh, of football uh, avenues for me. Well, yeah, and and you've written a, a bunch of uh, of very straightforward and and frankly news breaking articles about the XFL. But maybe before we get into some of that, g- give me a sense of what your perception of the XFL version 2.0, of course, uh, was uh, when Vince uh, magically showed up in that studio in Stamford, Connecticut, with that uh, video press conference announcing the return of this. Uh, shall we say, very tarnished brand from 10 years earlier. Yeah, I was uh, surprised um, and maybe a little skeptical. Um, you know, there has and there still has never been a successful alternative pro football league really since the AFL, uh, which eventually merged with the NFL in 1970. And, and that's where we have the modern NFL from now. And so since then, there have been many people who have tried to, uh, to, to essentially cash in on the NFL's success, to, uh, to sort of bleed into the uh, really you know, high-profile level of, of, of pro football and college football in this country. Um, but it had never been, uh, it's never been successful. And so I was really surprised because I didn't know what, where the path to success was. Um, you know, the, the, he made clear he didn't want to be a developmental league for the NFL, which some people have said is something that could possibly work. Um, that he wanted to have a, not necessarily a competitive league, but uh, with the NFL, but certainly one that was independent. And so I, I think my first reaction was probably skepticism. And when he talked about a two or three year ramp up process, I wondered if it would ever come to fruition. Well, and how did you also square that with, and I, I, I apologize for not remembering the exact timeline, 
but the arrival and the announcement of the AAF as well. And of course, for anybody who's not seen, this is the XFL and the Charlie Ebersol 30 for 30. And, and obviously Charlie's uh, uh, starting of the AAF, which is its own semi-comical and uh, and uh, disastrous uh, story in and of itself. Not, not related, but sort of related, right? Because in essence, you have to put this in framework, right? This is the second or one of two announcements of a, a, a new football league in the spring, albeit sep- in two separate years. Yeah, and the AAF felt very pressured slash motivated to uh, debut, to get ahead of the XFL. They thought that they would never have a chance if the XFL got on the field first and that their only chance was to get out there and start building their brand and acquiring players and that sort of thing before the XFL did. And so that's part of the reason they failed was they just, you know, it's really hard to build a football league regardless. And on their really rushed time uh, table, they weren't able to line up the financing. They weren't able to get their business side in order. Um, they actually had a, a decent football product, but the business side is what ultimately crashed that league. And a lot of that was because they were really rushed to try to get on the field before the XFL started. Well, aside from the bravado and the bucks, right, uh, in in Vince McMahon's favor, right, you know, uh, fr- from a pro football reporter perspective, right, you really now have two sort of challenger leagues, not only uh, coming out of nowhere, right, and arguably, uh, you know, uh, I guess framing you could sort of say, you know, where there once were none, now there are two, and, and how likely are each of them or both of them? to succeed but then you juxtapose that against what you said in the earlier part of this discussion right this sort of long litany of you know generally either directly or indirectly competitive right pro leagues of some ilk or sort uh and, and a bunch of them trying to fill this void in the spring so I, what's going through your mind as a as an eagle-eyed reporter trying to be objective maybe a little bit optimistic but I, it just seems like there's a, a bigger circus of folly beyond just Vince McMahon and the XFL. Yeah. I mean, I got the idea of why if something is really successful um, and seems to have a, be continuing to grow, which is what the NFL was in terms of revenues every year, it seemed like they were adding another billion dollars to their total revenues. And they had really shot up to the, um, to the uh, top of the list in terms of pro sports in this country uh, you know, sports gambling was, was becoming a big, uh, you know, around that time was just, it, people, we were just starting to realize that sports gambling was going to be a really, uh, strong revenue producer at some point for, for pro sports. And certainly football lent itself well to that, uh, from the fantasy perspective, uh, and just straight up gambling. Um, and so you could see why there would be interest. Um, you know, you have the money making and also just the, just the the interest level around the country in the game, but you still whether it was you know, mysterious financial backers of the AAF or the obvious financial backer of the of the uh, XFL and Vince McMahon, you still didn't know like how they could succeed because you know the NFL was uh, just celebrated its hundredth year. It took a long time for them to build themselves up into what they are, um, and football is a very expensive sport to to play um and to to pay players pay insurance pay workers comp you know leave stadiums all the things that go into 
you know, starting a league from scratch. The NFL is such a long head start on. So in my mind, again, I just, I just questioned where the financial path to success was. And I knew neither one of these leagues was doing this for charity or for fun. You know, you don't spend that kind of money or commit that kind of money just to have fun and watch, be able to watch football. They, they presumably thought there was a path to financial success. Um, and that's probably what I questioned is what was that path and how would that really work? So when the details start to sort of come out for this XFL thing and, and, and Vince sort of put some, you know, some specifics around it, announces Oliver Luck, obviously, we'll talk about him in a second. Give me a sense of, of did you think that, um, well, obviously he made a distance from the first version of the XFL for various reasons. But what struck me, I guess, is, is, as an interesting salvo was the choice of markets, right? Uh, seven of the eight markets for the XFL were in uh, NFL cities, albeit in different, well, mostly different stadiums, a couple shared, um, versus the AAF approach, which seems very, uh, I guess, classically challenger uh, with yeah. underserved markets such as the Jacksonvilles and the Birminghams of the world. Yeah, I, I understood that part because... Orlando, um, excuse me, not Jacksonville. I apologize. Yeah. Jack, Jacksonville yeah. on my mind because they, Jacksonville's clearly always been a, in the WFL. and I, I get yeah. the part to say, but, but you know, you don't get what I'm doing. Yeah. I mean, I definitely got the idea of using those markets because the XFL's whole basis was that they had hired a consulting firm to do market research. And the, the, the research packet came back saying there was 35 million to 40 million hardcore football fans in this country who, when the Super Bowl, the NFL Super Bowl was over, were just pining for more football. They, they, they're in mourning because, and we all know people like that, and maybe and sometimes I've been that way. They're just mourning uh, that second weekend in February when there's nothing, you know, there's no football on now and there's not going to be any for a long, long time. And so they felt like that was evidence and that was their target market. And so you might find those people in the markets you talked about uh, from AAF, but you probably were more likely to find them in cities that were already, you know, NFL cities and already sort of in that mode. And so I understood that their choice of markets in that regard, um, you know, the, the more people that live up in the other part is just math. I think the more people that live in those markets, the better chance you are of having people show up to a game. It's not going to be like college football where um, you have small college towns that a hundred thousand people come to because they've been doing that for years and there's tradition and there's, and there's an expectation of, of what it's going to be like. You're not going to have that kind of, crowd walk up to a uh, an XFL game so it makes sense to have them in big cities and in places where football is uh, pro football is already well established and successful and, and loved all right well two sort of two prong questions here uh, or parallel questions one sort of is on the product and the football side right that's where an Oliver luck comes into play and and if anything that uh, the AAF did right was at least, uh, uh, I think to most people, you know, they spent a lot of time and effort uh, trying to make sure that the football was of, of good quality and tinkering with the right rules. And it seemed like the XFL was going to do the same, if not perhaps a little bit even more so. Yeah. And, and they're there, you know, when I think the very first uh, press conference that, that Vince McMahon had, as he said, we were going to reimagine the game. Um, and that made me wonder, well, you know, in what direction are they going to reimagine it? Are they going to reimagine it towards, you know, 
you know, knocking people's heads off when they run across the middle, or is it going to be reimagined in some other way? And so when they hired Oliver Luck, um, I thought that was a real, uh, probably the best thing that they did in terms of getting, you know, true credibility for, a, to be, for being a serious football operation. And it told me that, you know, they were going to think outside the box. They were going to, you know, try to come up with some new ways of doing things, but it was going to be very much within the spirit of the game and the sensibilities of the game. Um, because that's, you know, obviously Oliver Luck being a former NFL quarterback and a, and an NCAA administrator and a college, you know, division one AD, you know, he, he they weren't going to have, you know, suddenly have 13 people on each side or, or have five forward passes allowed, um, on every play. And so that was a reassuring thing. And also a really good sign for the, for the credibility of the league in terms of the product they were going to try to create. In your world of football contexts, were there any rules that you found either personally or amongst your, uh, amongst your tribe or your sources that, that was generally seen as, as fun and interesting and intriguing and, or uh, similarly just head scratching and, and borderline folly? Um, you know, I, most of the NFL people watched that and they picked out two, two big things. And one was um, the kickoff alignment. They really thought that was smart in terms of getting to the place where everyone wants to get to, which are actually getting returns um, without having people run 35 yards in a full sprint and bashing heads with each other. And so the kickoff was very, it looked a little odd, you know, there's no doubt about it at the beginning, but it was very successful in achieving the goal that everyone wants, which is to stop having touchbacks and start having a lot more returns. So that caught the eye of a lot of NFL people of a different way to, to think about the kickoff. And the other thing was uh, that they really, uh, I think, uh, caught a lot of eyes in the NFL were uh, was the, the extra point situation. You know, the XFL got rid of actually kicking an extra point and they gave you it options for uh, one, two or, or, uh, or five points after the, um, excuse me, one, two or, or three points after a touchdown, um, depending on where you took the ball. And so that, um, that changed so much um, beyond just the decision of what you do. At t- it changed all the fourth quarter math that coaches have to think about. And they admitted that they, took them a while to really get what they should be doing that when you when you're down by um you know you're down by nine that that could be a one score game um and so uh you have to start thinking in a lot of different ways so it 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 created a whole different sense of how you should approach game management in the fourth quarter and even before that which was really fun and the uh you know even the even the uh the one point conversion was is not was not nearly as easy as an extra point kicking and so you saw a lot of uh odd scores a lot of uh you know no overtime games i don't think they had a single overtime game if i'm not mistaken and um so really those two things really caught the eye of nfl people and it doesn't mean they're going to implement it right away but i think it got some some people thinking that you know, when they actually saw it happen in a competitive game, that it wasn't as wild or crazy or, or too far out um, of the realm of possibility to consider. Well, how about on the, the business side of it? Uh, I guess there are two prongs to that. One is the approach to television, right? No, there's no pro league that's ever going to survive in this country that doesn't have some pathway to some kind of television uh, roadmap, if you will. And it looks like 
you know, the the uh, starting point was going to be the proverbial time buy or or resource sharing. We've seen that model on a number of different occasions over the over the years, but including uh, your network of domicile, ESPN. Uh, maybe you have some insider sort of knowledge or, or understanding of, you know, number one, smart idea. Number two, based on the ESPN broadcasts that I saw in the ABC slash ESPN co-branded uh, telecasts, it, it didn't seem like ESPN kind of spared any expense. I mean, I think Steve Levy, for example, I, he opened up the show by saying, throw out the rule books, right? There's, yeah, there are no rules. So it was clear that they were having fun and, 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 and it was, you know, on the side, it seemed like there was uh, no shortage of innovation and uh, enthusiasm for the broadcasts. No, and I think the, um, in the XFL, number one, you know, did a very important thing, uh, which is, you know, wh- whatever the pathway was, they got themselves on national television for every game. Every game was either on ESPN, Fox, ESPN2, FS1, um, FS2, I think, ESPN2. So every game w- was, you know, was available if you had cable. Um, and that, that was huge. And they, I, there's no, you know, there's no getting around that. Eventually, they would have had to go from a resource sharing situation to uh, to build, you know, the, their content value enough that someone would pay them to broadcast their games. And that didn't happen in the first year. And not not a surprise. It wasn't part of their business model. I don't think you certainly have to, you know, accept that it's really good just to get your games on TV the first year. But you know, to survive. Um, I think everyone understood that they were eventually going to have to get to that to that point where the, you know TV you know TV networks were, were paying them to, to broadcast the games. But um, in the meantime, they they really you know they in order to I don't want to say to induce the TV networks to do that, but to in the spirit of cooperation, they said, hey, we're open to anything. You know, if, if there's things that the networks want to try, um, you know, we're open to it. We're we're an open book. We're going to give you access to whoever you want, whenever you want. You know, if you want players, if they walk off the field after a turnover, we'll get them to you. If you want to hear the play call over the over the um, the intercom, you know, we'll give you that. If you want, uh, if you want to hear the replay, people make their decisions. We'll give you that. And so, um, it really gave the networks a chance to to expand and grow and provide you know interesting content because people tuning in the games, unless you're a really hardcore college football fan, you're not going to um, necessarily recognize every name of the player on the field. So you're not tuning in just to see how, at least in the first week or two, you know, PJ Walker is playing or, uh, you know, Cardale Jones, you, you know, you, you're turning into tuning in to see a TV show. And part of the show was giving you access that the NFL never would give you access to um, getting uh, insight and emotion uh, that you would never you know, you would never experience otherwise. I keep going back to, um, you know, Matt McGloin, the New York quarterback who really was having a bad game. I think it was in the second week and he kind of, um, you know, he was muttering under his breath and you could get a good sense of who he thought was responsible. And he and the coach had a little bit of a back and forth and that was real stuff. And so, um, it was great content. The XFL was, um, you know, willing to do just about anything. Um, and, it was easy for them because they had no tradition. Otherwise, if you said, if you went to the NFL and you said, you know, let's, let's, we'd like to get uh, coaches uh, play calls broadcast. There's no chance that would happen a, because they're, you know, they're much probably much more serious and secretive about their play calls and B 
they've gone all these hundred years without ever having to broadcast that. And they're not, it's not something that's easily changed, but when you have, when you get in sort of on the ground floor and, and everything's uh, open for discussion, you have a much better chance of that. And so I think that was sort of the XFL's approach there. Well, you're, you're knee deep in the NFL and, and pro football generally. What, what was your take on the, uh, uh, on the first, uh, well, the only number of weeks of, of play on the field? Uh, it seemed a little bit better maybe than what I saw at the AAF in its first couple of weeks. Yeah, it was, uh, it was better. Like I think some of the, the attention on the innovations overshadowed some of the, you know, uneven play. You know, we, I spent a lot of time personally watching to see how the, the various rule changes would work and how the, you know, the quicker pace would work. And, you know, because they had a, a 25 second game clock and then they, change um the way the end of the game would go so that there would be a better chance uh, more time for a two-minute dr- drill to to win a game and so i focus on a lot of that stuff and I, maybe some other people probably did too and that overshadowed the fact that these, this was still a very new operation in terms of you know all these teams were just getting familiar with each other none of these people had ever played together or coached together before and so the level of play was was probably uneven and it, a lot of it depended on whether your team had a, a healthy quarterback and B um, uh, a good one, you know, Houston was five and zero, and PJ Walker was their quarterback and he was the best quarterback um, in the, in the league. And I think he was the only guy who stayed healthy for the, for all five weeks. And so um, that was a big reason why they were, they played the best and they, um, and they had the, the best offense. Um, you know, there were there were some teams who, who sort of cycled through quarterbacks in New York. Matt McGloin was not as good as people had hoped, um, and their 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 level of play suffered, and it was a struggle. And so, um, there was definitely some games that didn't live up to the hype of, in terms of high scoring and fast pace. But they also were in the first five weeks of their existence, and so the the, the most meaningful part of the story was never told, which was what trend would they end the season on? Would they get, you know, they were at the midpoint of the season and would they, would they start scoring more in the second half? Would they get things together? Would things fall apart? Who knows? But so we never got a chance to sort of complete that story. But um, I think that uh, there were some games that were really fun to watch and some that weren't. Yeah. Another observation that I sort of have is, is um, uh, the stadiums and the, and the fans, right? So uh, the two flavors, I think to that number one, Having been a ma- big major league soccer fan over the years, the unique uh, usage, I guess, of two MLS uh, stadiums uh, in yep. Los Angeles and in DC, uh, even for the first game, um, which to me almost feels like a more sane and uh, um, realistic, I guess, environment, right? Where you're not talking about the cavernous 70 to 80,000 seat, you know gladiator size stadiums uh, aside from maybe the MetLife thing in New York which is a different issue but a more intimate kind of 20 to 25,000 seat environment where even if you don't sell it out it still feels like it's you know got a a hefty bunch of people there and, and good sound and 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 action and probably closer to the field at that for fans yeah and that, I think it was market dependent um in some ways too uh you know the, the two the two biggest or the two best attendants cities they had were Seattle and they played um, at CenturyLink, but they basically just sold the bottom, you know, I think they, they get like 25, you know, 30,000 people at their games and they just sold the, the, the lower deck and the same in St. Louis, they played in the old, I don't know, even, I think it's called the dome of St. Louis now, but it was the old TWA dome where the, 
where the Rams used to play and they sold, you know, mostly just the lower deck and they were at the 25 to 30,000 range. And both of those environments were very good. You know, there was plenty, of, you know, it looked good on TV. There was plenty of, of noise. Um, I, I was at the first game in DC where they had, I think uh, 17 or almost 18,000 people in the 20,000 um, seat Audi field. And that was a great environment. And if you'd had it at FedEx field, it would have been a lousy environment. So in that market, it was the right place. It was the right thing to do to have, to have it at MLS in LA. I mean, they, it was at MLS an MLS stadium, but they, I think were averaging like 13,000. They were like, might've been the lowest them in Tampa Bay might've been the lowest attendance uh, rankings. And so even though they were playing in an MLS stadium in a huge city, uh, they were not getting a lot of attendance. So it was really, there was a lot of variations in the markets. Um, and the, the idea, it was, it was a really good environment to have an almost full MLS stadium like in Washington or to have 25 to 30,000 people in the lower bowl in St. Louis and, and Seattle. Yeah. And, and I, I, obviously we will never know to sort of see how that plays out, but you know, there are plenty of MLS stadiums that frankly wouldn't mind some extra tenants and, and, and generate some revenue that way. And it could be a, but the, that was the other thing I was going to sort of bring up was you mentioned Seattle, of course, but I think indeed St. Louis, right? If there was any quote unquote, six, most successful franchise, frankly, for aside from being on the field, I'm talking about, it seemed like St. Louis was uh, only growing. I think they were expecting, I thought I read somewhere they were expecting almost 50,000 for their next game had it occurred. Yeah, they had, they were selling they had uh, opened up the upper deck i think for sales for their next home game that never was never played so i guess we don't know for sure how many people would have showed up but that was kind of the perfect formula because they're an nfl city that had been abandoned um and they're understandably very still very upset about that and sensitive about it and so they were that franchise was able to, to tap in to that um, sensitivity and that uh, desire to show that they really are a football town um, and also to embrace a team that really wanted to be there. You know, like we want the, we know that for a long time, the Rams didn't want to be there uh, before they moved. And so there was um, you know, a lot of, just a lot of bad feelings there and bad vibes there. And whereas the, the St. Louis XFL team really, obviously really wanted to be there and they wanted to connect and they found, a, uh, a community that was very willing to embrace them. All right. Well, before we get to the sort of the, the, the denouement and the uh, sort of collapse uh, for various reasons, I do want to uh, bring up a story that you wrote a couple of weeks back, uh, which I think brings up a, a possible other, if it had more time to do it, hint perhaps of what, uh, besides a business and television ratings and all that stuff, the XFL could have evolved into. And that was your story that you wrote about uh, Kenny Robinson. Maybe you want to give our audience a sense of of that story because Kenny Robinson's a guy coming out of college uh, who basically is, well, you tell the story. He, he basically eschewed, I think, eschewed college for the XFL instead to get to the, uh, maybe to get to the NFL, yeah? Right. So when, when the XFL first sort of came online, Oliver Luck, who had been an NCAA um, uh, executive and also a college AD, uh, made clear that just because the NFL has a rule that you have to be three years out of high school to be eligible for the draft, but that's not like a law or it's not an NCAA rule. It's an NFL rule and the XFL would not be bound by that. So if the circumstances were right, the XFL would be happy to take 
uh, a promising college player who had played, you know, some time in college, but hadn't, for whatever reason, hadn't gotten through the three years. And so wouldn't have been eligible for the NFL yet, but they would be happy to, you know, host that player for a year in the XFL. And that only happened with one player. Um, and that was Kenny Robinson in the first year. I think it would have been more of it later. But Kenny Robinson had been an all Big 12, uh, all conference uh, safety at West Virginia, real ball hawk, a lot of interceptions. Um, he got thrown out of school after his second year because of an academic violation. Um, and so his options at that point were to either transfer down to a lower division and play right away and maybe disappear off of the off of the draft map for the following year or transfer and, you know, walk on probably, but have to sit out a year at another school. And so instead of waiting a year and and he didn't want to transfer down. So instead of waiting a year and then playing like the 2021 season um, in, in uh, excuse me, the 2020 season in college and entering the 2021 NFL draft, he decided to go to the XFL play you know, an XFL season, use that as sort of his, you know, final year tape. Um, he would have to miss the combine. He wouldn't be eligible for the combine, but he thought, and, and the XFL encouraged it that playing 10 games in a, in a professional league would, would probably do a lot more for his NFL prospects than playing, you know, sitting out and playing an, another division one year, uh, following year. And so he did that. Uh, two interceptions in five games, uh, playing for St. Louis, and uh, then entered the draft. You know, he didn't he didn't have as much tape as he would have hoped because they only played five of the ten weeks. But he had enough, and he ended up being a, a day three pick of the uh, I believe it was the fifth round of the um, of the Carolina Panthers. And uh, and now he's you know he's got an NFL signing bonus. He in addition to the salary he earned uh, in the XFL. Um, he, so, and, and now he's, he's on track to, to make an NFL roster in 2020, instead of playing, um, at another school in, in 2020 in college. And so he was sort of the first and now the only player to get around the rules, um, that exist for college players as they feed into the NFL. And he was able to be paid a salary for one of the years that he otherwise would have been in college. And so that was something that that a lot of people have talked about, you know, for a long time, would there ever be a way to, um, to service those type of players and get them into a, a pro league, get them, you know, they could be paid legally, I guess is the best way to put it as opposed to what might happen in college, but, um, and then still not have their draft or their path to the NFL, uh, disrupted in any way. And in his case, it was accelerated. And so I think they probably would have looked for more players like that in their second year. But uh, it turns out Kenny Robinson will be the only one to have benefited from that uh, from that process. How did how did Robinson become the one, I guess, to be the first to, to do that? Because it seems like I'm getting the sense and your, your reporting sort of said it that McMahon didn't want to ruffle too many feathers too soon in that first year with this idea. Yeah, I, I um, you know, he, he went to I think the story in his, from his perspective was that, you know, his mom had been diagnosed with cancer. And so he was very worried about supporting her. Uh, his trainer told him about the, the XFL and that it was holding sort of regional combines. And he went to one and met with the, with Oliver Luck and those people. And, and um, they both got a good feel for each other. And so the XFL felt confident that he was a, at a player who was high enough ceiling to make it worth it 
and to use sort of as a test case. Um, but I don't know if there was a ton of other people who pursued it. Um, it wasn't like they were going to get Trevor Lawrence from Clemson to give up his year, you know, his next two years and play in the XFL. Um, from a, even from a financial standpoint, I'm not sure if that would have worked well for a guy like Trevor Lawrence, but uh, you know, players like a Kenny Robinson, certainly it did, but I'm not sure if they had, if they're necessarily their doors were being blown down by people trying to do that or not. It probably would have been a more popular and um, interesting option for people this year had the XFL continued. But I don't think if I, my understanding is right, that I know the XFL didn't want to do a bunch of those players right away. They wanted to see how it went. And, um, and I don't know how many really expressed interest either. Well, it also brings up the question, and it seems uh, there was friction in this idea, right? Uh, McMahon sort of at least publicly said that, you know, he didn't sort of envision this as being a, a feeder league or a or developmental league for the NFL. Right. In many respects, it's kind of that, right? It's, it feels a little G League-ish or, or, you know, some of the uh, – or, you know, an alternative to playing college, say, in, say for um, – you know, MLS and soccer or certainly baseball, right? Where you've truly well, parallel path. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And in this case though, like you could make an objective argument that, he, that his talent and his potential made it a no brainer. You know, he was one of the more talented players in the league on, from the defensive side. Um, and certainly had the most potential you know, amongst the, amongst a lot of, most of them had the most NFL potential as well. So it wasn't like they were just kind of doing a charity case or they were just doing this, you know, the, it, the benefit to the XFL is that the player is good enough that he raises the level of play for their league, even though they eventually, they know he's eventually going to go to the NFL. And they still had a more talented player playing that position for that team than they otherwise would have. Yeah. What, what, what would have been, well, let's, let's kind of speed it up to, She's uh, not even a month ago now as we're recording this. So on April 10th, uh, the uh, somewhat abrupt uh, conference call by Jeffrey Pollack, the chief operating officer, which is which is which was a Friday. And then the Monday thereafter came sort of the the falling of this the second uh, shoe to drop, which is the actual filing uh, for bankruptcy of Alpha Sports and 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 the basically the the Pereira nail in, in the coffin. So if you can remember that far back, <laughs> obviously, you know, the, the coronavirus uh, issue is hitting pro sports and all kinds of ways of life, not just pro sports. It's significant in unprecedented ways. But w- what was your take on this as it this these two events were playing out? Did you because I got the sense that there was kind of a little bit of an intrigue sort of hanging on that Friday call. But then Monday kind of closed the door on any potential hope. How did how did this um, play out in your mind? Yeah, I mean, I I was not expecting it, and I think most people who worked for the XFL were not expecting it. You know, the, the the in the year in the in the time heading into the season, that was the number one question: Would the XFL get past its first year? And, you know, would it be another AAF? And my answer always was: The big difference between the XFL and the AAF is that they had a real, you know, honest to God, you know. Uh, financier, you know, we know Vince McMahon, uh, we know who Vince McMahon is, and we know he has enough money to fund this. And if we didn't know that, we saw that he had told, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of WWE stock, um, of his own stock to, uh, to fund the company that was sort of the parent company for the XFL. So we knew the money existed. We didn't, you know, the only, um, 
hang up is that he could decide not to spend that money just like any businessman. But uh, there was every indication that he had gotten into it for the long haul for two or three years. And so even though, you know, we were headed sort of into this unprecedented economic time and, um, and uh, you know, not being able to put, even finish out the season and certainly not even being sure what would be the, the, the situation around the country in the following spring. I just, you know, my own thought was that, you know, they had, there was enough money there in the bank to make this, and they had put too much work into building it up in the first place. They, you know, remember they'd been in product development for two years after that announcement from Vince originally before they launched of 2018 to 2020. And that it would seem to be a very quick uh, pull if, um, if they had, you know, gone five games and then thrown in the towel after the, uh, the, the COVID pandemic. And so I was surprised certainly when the news came out um, that Friday morning and, but in calling around the people from the XFL that were on the call, it was very clear to them that this was not a furlough situation. It was not a, you know, we'll call you back once this is all over type of situation. They were all based on the tone and the words used convinced that the league was done um, that Friday, even though the league statement didn't say as much. And then that following Monday, the bankruptcy thing came, which seemed more of like a, a business, you know, this was how they chose to liquidate the business, you know, do the bankruptcy pass. Um, and so that part seemed a little anticlimactic. I was pretty certain that Friday in the hours after the call that the league, you know, wasn't just suspended. It was, it was, it was done. Were you, were you surprised that perhaps it wouldn't just be suspended, say for the year and, 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 uh, and, truly try to buy some time until next season. And, and, you know, you could still ramp down spending and people and personnel and stuff and keep your options open, right. For, for another season, if, and when things might've normalized. No. Yeah. That's sort of, the, that's sort of the unknown of the equation is really what the bottom their bottom line was, how much, not only how much money would that require, but also, and I think this part played into it a little bit was the uncertainty that it, it wasn't just, you know, we'll send everybody home here in April and we'll pull them back um, in December. Or so once, you know, the world is back to normal, because because that's when the training camps and all that would start for the 2021 season, that because there's no, you know, Vince McMahon's like all the other business owners in the country. They have no idea what the world's going to be like in December. Um, in the football world, we have no idea what's going to happen, you know, to be honest, with the NFL season or the college football season. And if either one of those or both is delayed or pushed into the spring, then that would infringe on what the XFL's window was, and that could be disastrous for them as well. And so, um, you know, Vince McMahon hasn't really spoken publicly about this, so we don't know entirely what his thinking is. And I'm not sure that a lot of people who work for the XFL or worked for the XFL know either, but it wasn't as if they could, they had a firm that anyone could have had a firm grip on the timetable that would have been presented to them before they could get back to business. You know, there was no guarantee whatsoever that they could step away for eight months and then everything go back to normal. And so that was probably part of the equation as well. Well, and I know this is kind of a, for us at least, this silly little show, a hot take, right? Uh, But you know, as we record this the first week of May, college football is still 
in a number of circles, still a viable proposition. Now, we'll see, right? The NFL, okay, trimming their international games, but they're going through, you know, they went through with the draft and, and they're going to be announcing their schedule in a couple of days, right? So at least they're yeah. going through the mechanics of of normalcy. And again, we'll see, right? But it, it would, I don't know, as an outside fan with no inside understanding and, and or knowledge of, of McMahon or 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 any of it, right? It it as a just as a fan and or as a curiosity interest, it seems like it wasn't not only premature but but a hasty and rash and very fast decision when arguably certain things were still not sort of uh, fully or at least more visibility about say other football leagues and all that stuff were maybe more known. We're still waiting for that. Yeah, and um you know, and we, and we don't know at this point how much money he'd put in or how much more money he would have to put in before he had the chance to to get something out of it. But maybe when you add all the things we've talked about with the fact that it was still, even in a perfect situation, still not anywhere close to a guarantee that they were going to become profitable in the next couple of years. And then maybe you just say, well, maybe it's smart in this environment to cut your losses and not just keep spending money on it. And I know that's not what he wanted to do. Like he, like he, he spent hundreds of millions of dollars just to, to get it to the point where it was. So like, that's not, you know, you know, pleasant uh, by any means. And so, um, you know, and it was probably, I think when he made the commitment initially, he probably knew that he was going to be spending a lot more than that to get it to where it was going to be. And so I can only, I can, only assume that he decided it was better to, to cut losses to to minimize um, his exposure. You know, obviously the WWE is his primary um, business, and and focus on that. Uh, we may never know the full story there, but I think I don't think he I don't think it was a it might have been a quick decision, but I doubt that it was. Uh, it was not based on some really hard numbers that he was faced with. Oh, I, I'm sure. And it's not our money. Right. So, uh, yeah. It's so, uh, um, but it, you know, I guess as a fan and you believe us to a certain aspect and, and given all the time and all the resources to use to your point earlier, uh, put against it, uh, and the belief, right. That, um, that this was a worthwhile enterprise. I mean, it just seems, and again, this is, it's not my dough, but it just seems like you're, you're now, you're ending any potential opportunity for this to succeed later on somehow in some kind of delayed sort of fashion. I, I guess the real thing that I, and again, we may never know, it would be really interesting to hear. I, you know, I'm sure there are going to be fans. And by the way, fans were really into this. I mean, this, it was, you know, granted there might only 18 or 20,000 people in a cavernous MetLife stadium, but they seem to be having fun. And I think there was clearly some goodwill being built up there. I, you know, you, you got to think though that part of Vince, aside from the businessman and, and cutting losses, which is rational and understandable and, and it's his money, um, there's a the bit of sort of the tarnished legacy there because he's had sort of two bites of the cherry, if you will, and two different, you know, one very tart, shall we say, and much one other more sweet, shall we say, uh, in approach to football, to strain an analogy. Uh, and he's, uh, you know, a, kind of not been able to fulfill them in either case, right? So there's got to be a bittersweetness to this, albeit maybe for reasons beyond his control. Yeah, I mean, I think you could probably look at the first iteration and, and maybe, I don't know what he would say to it, but 
the first iteration, you could say definitely failed on its own accord. Um, you know, probably, I mean, there'll be a, nothing is ever really straight, this straightforward, but I think probably when history looks back on 2.0, though, it, the inescapable um, obituary will be that it was felled by the pandemic. Um, and, you know, we can't say a, with 100% certainty, and probably Vince McMahon can't either, what he would have done after, um, if they had played the full season and there had absent any any pandemic, would he have gone to year two? We think he would have. Um, but you know, again, when you have a one person ownership structure and it's not, you know, a group, there's no board of directors, there's no um you know, buddy else really with any control there, you can't say for certain. So I I you know, I think he'll he to the extent that he's interested in, in doing it, I think he, he could, he could reasonably incredibly say that 2.0 was a lot better, um, had a much better plan, a much better product, but ran into the surprise of the, of, you know, one of the biggest economic and public health crisis in the history of the country um, and joined many, many other businesses that, that were taken down with it. All right, a couple of quickies to round out our, our conversation. I appreciate this. It's been great. Based on what you know the last couple of weeks and, and to the extent that you're still still trailing it, although obviously you've got this NFL thing to keep uh, a tab on during, you know, for the for the rest of your uh, your day job. What of uh, Oliver Luck's lawsuit? What of uh, the bankruptcy proceedings? Uh, do you sense that somebody will scavenge for these assets, whatever they are? What do you think plays out in the next couple of months if you have any sort of visibility into sort of how this whimpers down to a yeah, I mean, there'll, there'll definitely need to be a resolution to Oliver Luck's um, lawsuit. You know, he was terminated um, prior to the call that every, where everyone else got laid off, and I'm sure he was the highest paid, you know, employee there. And so there's some significant dollars, um, you know, that would appear to be owed to him. Um, and we haven't seen the response to the lawsuit from Vince McMahon's attorney. So we don't know what their, what their sort of you know, rejoinder to it is, but um, there's a lot of things that are redacted in Oliver Luck's uh, lawsuit that, that if they weren't would provide us some details into exactly what the dispute between the two of them are. But so that'll have to be resolved either through a settlement or through, you know, open court. You know, I would doubt either side really wants to go through open court, but we'll see. Um, so that's something that has to be solved. And anyway, the XFL is officially for sale. I presume if anybody wanted to, um, you know, buy the name and buy the, uh, whatever intellectual property that would be associated with it and sort of squat on it until, you know, there's a better economic opportunity to, to start the league again. Um, and that's to be seen, but I don't expect, um, you know, I don't expect the XFL to return anytime soon, if ever. And I don't know if there'll be a, you know, a similar or even close to similar attempt to create another league for quite some time. All right. Well, so that that sort of is my sort of last sort of big question. And I guess it's got a, a couple of components to it. One is there is that sort of long chain of, of challenger leagues, shall we say, uh, not only in sports generally, but football specifically. Um, and I guess the answer to that part is, you know, over time, if there's any sort of whatever the new normal looks like uh, over a period of time, certainly not in the near term, uh, does 
it just seems that history would just regenerate another group of people who would want to take another stab at the big dollars of, of a arguably still very, you know, uh, robust pro football marketplace. But, you know, is it cursed, right? The idea of uh, people don't necessarily do these things for business reasons, right? Egos and, and big boys and their toys and all that kind of stuff, right? So and there's the elixir of football and owning pro sports and all that stuff. I mean, aside from the short list, let's call it short term. It's a couple of years. Who knows? But uh, what's to say? Who's to say that there won't be more people that come back to the well again and try again? Um. I mean, it, like if history is a guide, then somebody will get the idea and that they're smarter than everybody else and that they can do it in a way that no one else has been able to do it before. Um, my own, just from a very like, and I'm in no way a, a business reporter or have a you know very sharp business mind, but just the, the, the really unprecedented you know economic situation that the country is in and probably will be in for a while makes me think that there's just, it's just probably going to be the furthest thing from anybody who's capable of its mind to actually do it and do it in a way that would have a chance to make it um, anytime soon. Like, but then, then we're in such an unprecedented time. We can't say that like these type of economic um, downturns last X amount of time because there's never been, there's almost, there's only been one or two of them in the history of the country. And so it, it could be years before we're even in a spot where somebody who, has that kind of money would feel comfortable spending it on on something like that um but there's no doubt that even though all the leagues that have been attempted um since 1970 uh, have failed there's keeps being more people um interested and more people are interested um you know seems like every decade and so uh I, you, I can't rule out that somebody will get that idea, but it just seems like really, to me, far-fetched that anybody will feel comfortable doing it anytime soon. Well, Barnum is right, right? There's a sucker born every minute. All right, but that leads yeah, to my, sure. my, my ultimate uh, last question here, which is uh, leads us to the, the doorstep of the NFL. So what do you think, I mean, I, the XFL specifically, probably not so much, but, but what do you, given all that's happened in the last number of weeks globally, and in the pro sports world specifically, uh, and now circling around the NFL, which, you know, at least is going through the motions, albeit with a couple of nips and tucks uh, of a, you know, fall season with very little sort of change to it, at least as of now. What do you think this does to the NFL at some point? I mean, I, you know, I, I made the argument earlier on, I, I think that a lot of sports, a lot of pro sports you know, we've been sort of at, at, at some peak levels, right? I'm a, I'm a big soccer fan, but, you know, do we need 30 teams and growing in Major League Soccer? I don't know. I mean, do we need – we've got two supposedly multi-billion dollar stadiums, uh, you know, supposedly going online this fall that are in many respects almost, um, I don't know, incongruous to, to the new reality that we live in now. And I, I, I'm not saying that the NFL is in dire straits or, or ready to contract or any of that stuff, but – I can't think the uh, the the senior management and the owners of the and the players and everybody involved with the NFL isn't looking at this little bit of a, a, a blip of the XFL and saying, "Geez, what of this is going to affect us?" and and what are your thoughts? Um, I think that you know sports leagues like the NFL and others are now hugely incentivized to find a way to play their games, not, 
you know, not just sit there and wait for the, the pandemic to be over and for physical distancing to be a thing of the past, but to find a way to play amidst that norm, that new normal, I guess. Um, and, you know, to this point, obviously NBA hasn't figured it out, Major League Baseball, NHL, we're starting to see it in the Korean baseball a little bit. Um, we're there back on the field and that's, you know, if, how is it going to, how is this going to affect the NFL? Um, it will affect the NFL significantly if they can't innovate a way to play their season in some way, shape or form between now and the start of next season. Um, I guess is the best way to put it. And what that will look like, um, they need to think outside of the box. They need to, um, you know, maybe these sports leagues, if the idea is that you can't play these games unless people are being tested all the time, then maybe these sports leagues need to heavily invest themselves in creating an environment in the country where everyone can get tested enough that they're not then pulling away tests that should go to people of more medical need. And so I, I think that's where the NFL is right now from a business standpoint is, uh, you know, they, they could get hurt significantly if they just sit back and wait um, for the all clear, so to speak, because who knows when or if they'll be an all clear. Um, but they need to find a way, just like the Korean Baseball League is doing, just like Major League Baseball is trying to figure out, the NBA is trying to figure out, NHL is trying to figure out, MLS, golf, tennis. Everyone's trying to figure out how they can they can play their games safely um, and, and not have the revenue, uh, you know, drip dry. And so that, that's where the NFL is. It's, it's not, I can't say like what it's going to do to them because I don't know how they're going to be able to, re- whether they'll be able to respond, but if they can't, if they can't figure out a way to do it, then you lose the NFL is a $15 billion a year industry and they can't play their season. Then you, you know, you can do the math and figure out how much it's going to it's going to hurt them. And the collateral damage of television too, right? It's propping yeah. up a lot of broadcast television, right? No doubt. There's that that's part of it too and something that has to be taken into consideration. And so that's why like I say like, you know, the NFL, you know if if these leagues, you know, they probably need to partner um, themselves or I'm sure there's some people thinking about how they can do that. What do they need to do to ensure that NFL, you know, NFL players can be tested enough to ensure the safety of them playing against each other in games, but not also creating the, the really bad public look of them taking more than their share of tests um, so that they can play their football games while people in, in medical crisis need them for much more important things. And so that's kind of where all the sports leagues to me are. Is how can they manage that and what can they do to alleviate the scarcity Um, that exists as it is now. All right. Our thanks to Kevin. And uh, if you want to follow the uh, football writings, that's the NFL, whatever occurs uh, further with the XFL, all kinds of other great football writing. Uh, Kevin Seifert's uh, stuff obviously is going to be found on ESPN.com or the ESPN app. Uh, and, of course, you can follow Kevin on Twitter uh, at his handle. That's at Seifert ESPN. That's Seifert, S-E-I-F-E-R-T, and the letters ESPN. All one little truncated little little handle there uh, on Twitter. And uh, we look forward to staying in touch with Kevin and uh, obviously 
staying in touch with you as we uh, continue to investigate uh, what transpires uh, further from this XFL demise. Uh, certainly stories yet to come out, and uh, we'll do our best to to wrap them up in a nice uh, bow in, a, in an upcoming episode uh, when it warrants. And of course, if you want to keep in touch with what we're doing here, uh, by all means, why don't you subscribe to the show if you haven't done that already. We're available uh, wherever good podcasts are found, whatever your favorite uh, podcast catcher or listener or device is. By all means, you'll find us there. Just search us up and, and subscribe. Uh, find us on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. If you want to see all the old episodes, you can stream them there or you can download them, do whatever you want with them. And of course, on the website, you'll find uh, all of our social media feeds as well. But you can, you know, you can follow us uh, directly from whatever your favorite social environment might be. For example, we're on Twitter, of course, too, at uh, at Good Seats Still. Uh, you'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. And you'll also find a little page devoted to us on Facebook, too. If you want to care to follow us there, you can do that. And uh, let's see, you want to get email from us? You want a little weekly email newsletter? Well, we got you covered. We'll send you a little uh, advance notice about what uh, each week's episode or uh, the coming week's episode that is is going to be. Uh, you can just find the link conveniently there on our website and just sign up and uh, you'll be added to the list. And of course, if you want to send us an email directly, you can do that, too. And we're at hello. Hello at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Yeah, hello at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Pretty easy to remember. And uh, we'll uh, hopefully do our best to uh, uh, answer your question or uh, your your comment or your request, whatever it might be. And uh, we thank you for sending those emails. And we appreciate especially the the increased volume of emails we've gotten over the last couple of weeks by uh, by most by many of you who have uh, said that, that uh, you know, you enjoy listening to us. We appreciate that, especially now. Uh, when you get a little bit bored or a little bit overwhelmed by what's going on in the world, uh, and we give you a little bit of a respite, well, that's our little uh, contribution there, and we're happy to do it. And of course, we, uh, we're we happy for our, uh, our production skills that come to us each and every week by way of a guy named Jerry Payne down there in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, he is uh, the consummate professional, and Jerry Payne Audio Excellence is his firm. And uh, if you need some podcast uh, production help, He's probably the guy to be of help to you. Let us know if you're interested. We'll get you connected to Jerry. And we, of course, tip our, uh, well, I don't know if it's our baseball cap, right? But maybe our our XFL logoed cap. There you go. His way and his general direction. Uh, and our thanks, of course, for all his production help this and each and every week. And, of course, we thank you each and every week for listening, putting up with us. And uh, we uh, appreciate, again, all the commentary. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. God knows what we're going to be talking about. But uh, by golly, we'll uh, do our best to be here. And uh, hopefully you'll be here too. Take care until next week. Bye-bye. This is the future. This is not the past. This is the future. And the future moves fast. This is quicker, simpler. Rules, reform. This is your game. Safer. This is football. Reborn. This is gaming and fantasy. This is padded. Roulette. Make a trade, make a team, make a move, make a bet. This is fans above all. This is maximum action. Let's stall. More ball, fewer infractions. This begins in 2020. The future is near. More access, more everyone, more everything here. This is our moment, our story to tell. This is history begun. This is the XFL.